1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Britt Edelin, your host for this podcast on the New Books in Literary Studies channel. Um, I'm joined today by Lucy Alford, a professor of English at Wake Forest University. Um, Hi, Lucy. Welcome. Hi. Thank you. So today we're going to be talking about um, Lucy's book, Forms of Poetic Attention, which is out just published through Columbia University Press, um, and it's a it's a really interesting piece. It's something that I had a lot of fun reading. Um, and so, before we get deep into the conversation, um, Lucy, I I would love to hear your background, um, both academically or how you came to literature and literary studies, as well as the origination of this book, how you came to think you know, this is something I want to write about, this is something that's necessary, Um, how you came to these questions that formed this book.
0: Mm. So I started, I guess I fell in love with literature and with poetry in particular when I was a kid. Um, My mother gave me a little book of poems when I was, I think, six, and um, I just totally fell in love with these tiny language objects and um, started writing poetry with my friends, you know, as a kid. And, um, but I came to this idea or interest in attention actually when I was a graduate student at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. And I was working there on a question of attention as it plays out in ethics. So thinking about the ways in which um, ethical problems, questions of relation and responsibility depend on and complicate um, matters of attention um, and vice versa. So the ways in which we attend, the things to which we attend, the things that we refuse or are unable to attend to um, shapes in profound ways our ethical relationship to the world. And that got me thinking about, you know, where where can we practice <laughs> our ability to attend to complex things? Um, where can we practice giving voice to complex issues or questions, complex relations, um, and where can we where do we find our attention challenged? And for me, you know, poetry offered up, one answer to that question, not the only answer, but one answer to that question, um, as a site for the practice of attention, as as a form that that challenges us. Um, often in, in very short, in very <laughs> short amount of space, in in a matter of a few lines, you know, our attention can be challenged um, by poetic language. Um, so that is, that's what led me to, to want to work on this project. And from there, it was really just a, a process of, of thinking really hard <laughs> um, as a graduate student then at Stanford, um, thinking very hard about, you know, what shapes can attention take? What shapes do poems take? Um, what is the interface or intersection between our conscious awareness Of the world, our ability to orient our attention in the world, um, and the ways in which we form language.
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That's, um, I think one of the things that I was so interested in while reading this was that you didn't take attention for granted um, in the sense that when you read a poem, it is a very obvious act of attention. It's, you're paying, not only are you paying attention to the poem, um, but the poem pays attention to something else. Um, and I think the the whole text really tries to differentiate between different perhaps species or um, types of attention. Um, and I think you do a great job dragging them out, um, so to speak. And before we really get into it, I want to highlight something that I thought was so interesting about the process of reading this was that you weave together so many different um, domains of knowledge, or disciplines, or even within literary studies, certain trends. So there's um, really close new, perhaps almost formalist or new critical readings. There's um, you mention a lot of uh, psychological studies, so a, a neuroscientific or cognitivist approach to literature there's phenomenology, there are so many different forms. And you mentioned that a lot of your close readings are actually, you know, your close readings, they're deeply rooted in your own subjectivity. Um, like you started off um, talking about your mother giving you that book. So it's this very personal thing. Can you talk a little bit about how you see this happening as a part of attention studies, what you call it, and how these subjects work together because of your focal point in attention.
0: Mm, yeah. So I wanted to think about, you know, the, in some ways, the, the methodology of this book is is necessarily pieces together a variety of methodologies, as you as you point out Um and for me, that's that's in part because, you know, many of the, the schools of thought on how to read poems um, isolate out one particular mode of approach, right? Whether it's, you know, looking at the poem as a historical artifact, um, looking at the poem in isolation, you know, in the formalist tradition, um, looking at the poem for how it affects the reader. And... You know the the truth is we 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 it, it's helpful sometimes to to put on one of those lenses to isolate out other modes of approach and and look you know solely at one aspect of how the poem exists in the world, um, but the thing is you know the, a poem is this complex object that lives in a whole transhistorical you know um, relationship with other objects and with and with many people right writer writers and readers and so for me the the methodology had to in some ways reflect the complexity of the poem as an attentional object right the fact that it is nested in an economy of of distributions or many economies of distribution depending on how long it lives in the world um the fact that it will res- it will be read by different readers in different ways the fact that it will be reproduced in different media across time so it had it seemed to me that to think about poems in terms of how they form attention one had to straddle or do a kind of dance between these different modes of approach right and one had to stay open to Okay, what can we learn from cognitive science? What can we learn from the historical moment in which a poem was made? What can I learn from from really, you know, in the sort of phenomenological tradition, which is which is maybe the the primary mode that I occupy in this book? um, You know, what can I learn by tuning in not only to the poem but to what's happening in my own attention while reading it? while reading it multiple times while thinking about it after reading it right so there's a kind of triangulation or, or more than a triangulation a kind of webbed you know uh inhabitation of of several different approaches at once um hope that helps
1: <laughs> yeah um i think the, your idea that i mean i mean it's not your idea this is something that we know and i think it's something that Um, even lay readers, um, people who aren't, you know, um, engaged in literary scholarship. It's what scares people about poetry. It's hard. It's complex. It's really, it's, you, you write that it is true that poetic language is densely formed. Um, And I think that's so interesting because I I mean, if you read German, you know that um, the word for poetry, Dichtung, and the word for um, dense, dicht, they're the same. They're, they don't have the same etymology but they they're false friends um but it a poem's dense and i think your book gets to the density by putting in a lot of different types of readings and smashing them together and seeing what comes out and i was so interested just to the returns that happened and you would mention a name and come out with another one and i thought it was very dynamic and exciting um so now we can i think we can jump into your text and i want to it gives a really good skeleton or a framework for how to move through it um, right at the beginning. And I I wanna break down the conversation kind of in the way that your book itself breaks down um, poetic or poetic attention. So you start off by mentioning that you're going to split off into two different main camps of the type of attention you're paying attention to. One is transitive, and the other is intransitive. And can you describe the difference between those? And then we'll go into a further discussion of each one and the different modalities of reading that come out of them. Sure.
0: So yes, as you say, the the book is divided into these two parts um, along the lines of two broad varieties of attention. The first, what I chose to call transitive attention to to link it a little bit more strongly into the grammars of language, um, the transitive attention is object-oriented attention. So modes of attention that take an object in the ways that transitive verbs take an object when we attend to something. Um, And so the the kinds of attention that I considered in the chapters in the first half um, are contemplation, desire, recollection, and imagination, and we can go into the dynamic coordinates, as I call them, the how 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 transitive attention works, um, maybe in a bit, and then the second half of the book is on intransitive attention. Again, thinking about intransitive verbs, and verbs that don't take an object. There are modes of attention that are objectless, and these varieties, um, I chose four to consider more in-depth vigilance resignation idleness and boredom and these these varieties in the second half of the book are in some ways the most challenging and 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 the most interesting to think about because you know our colloquial use of the word attention has become so narrowed down to one particular mood right effortful um, focus on an object, right? directed, selective attention to. But the actual attentional faculty includes all of these softer and more open, um, and even vacant states, right? Where our attention ha- is not zooming in on, right? Is not directed to. Uh, so those were. That's the the basic structure of the book. It's very much sort of a bivalve book, like a like an oyster or something like that.
1: Yeah, so we can we can start I guess we'll start right where you start with um transitive attention and you you mentioned these dynamic coordinates and I think it this was such an interesting part of the text to read because these things happen without us knowing them or they about without us being aware of them necessarily. Um and you put into words exactly what things are going on inside of a poem and can you give us the dynamic coordinates that you discuss for transitive attention um, and maybe how you thought of them or how, um, they came to you as you read poems?
0: Sure. Um, so the, there were five coordinates, which are really the, the kind of moving parts, the moving variables, um, that make up a mode of transitive attention. Um, and they're combinatory and scalar, so so they should not be think. We shouldn't think of of these coordinates or these moving variables as somehow fixed or sort of cate- categorically closed off from one another. There's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of dynamism between them, um, and you know I think more in terms of degrees than an on off switch. But the 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 coordinates are in interest. So is the attention is the focalized attention that we're thinking of is it is it interested or disinterested, right? Is there a degree of motivation, um, or not uh, intentionality? Um, we think we can think of that as as sort of passivity or activity on the part of the attending subject. So. Um, In cognitive terms, it's a difference between endogenous and exogenous attention, endogenous meaning effortful or intentional, right? Where the attention is actively oriented toward its object on purpose, right? I, the attender, intentionally focus on this poem versus a more passive um, or receptive oriented, you know, exogenous attention, which is, which is, um, brought to my attention from the outside right when m- suddenly my attention is arrested by a sound right or by a sudden movement um my attention goes to that object but not because i cho- i chose to orient my object my attention in that direction but rather because it was external. it was seized externally um, selectivity has to do with uh, a few different dimensions of the object really you know how narrow how narrow is the field of attention being being made in the in the act of focusing? Right? How focused is it? So, um, is all of the attention concentrated on you know a small object on a on a minute point, um, or is it more sort of panoramic? Right? Um, we can think about. You know, even just at a formal level, we can think about, you know, the difference between reading a haiku and reading a, a Whitman poem, right, or reading a, a one word line versus reading a, a, a line that spans the end of the page, right, where where we're holding in our minds a whole a panorama or a multitude of things. Um, resolution had to do with the clarity of the attention, right? There are times when my attention... Uh, focuses on something in a very clear and, and sharply focused way, sharply um, defined way. And there are ways in which poems do this, right? By bringing out uh, crisp detail, right? By, by really um, crystallizing um, an object of the attention. But then there are also softer focuses, right? Softer, softer outlines, blurrier images. Um, and these in poetry and in art are not uh, worse necessarily, but they have a different effect. And then the integrity had to do with are we are we focusing on an object, right? Is the poem um, is the poem bringing all of our attention into one place, or is there more fragmentation or dispersal, right? Are there several things happening at once? Um, temporal remove. The fourth coordinate had to do with the distance in between myself or one as the attending subject and the object of my attention. So is the object of my attention present with me in time or is the object of my attention in the future? Or in the past, as in the act of recollection, right? Am I casting forward or back across time, or am I attending to something that is um, co-present with me at least temporally? And then apprehension is was a little bit is a more complicated um, category that had to do with you know the whether the attention whether the object of attention in a particular mode of transitive attention whether the object of attention really sort of comes into being in the particular attentional act or whether it is in some ways slipping away or ungraspable um and this has to do with with not only the quality of the object but also the state of mind of the attending subject right um Am I as a as an attender um, able <laughs> to grasp this object, or am I not able to grasp this object? And I think you know when you talk about the 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 difficulty of reading poems and the ways in which many many people, students of all ages, students of poetry, readers of poetry of all ages, um, often find poems boring. Um, that often has to do with something like the the challenge of apprehension, right? The challenge mm-hmm. of bringing the poem into our attending field of of knowing what to attend to, of feeling that the poem is somehow beyond our grasp. That 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 combination of frustration and muteness on the part of the poem, you know, can yield an experience of boredom. Um, so those are the those are the main, you know. Variety, kinds of coordinates the the elements that go into making up a particular state of attention whether it's contemplation desire recollection or imagination or something else
1: i'm glad you bring up boredom um it's something i want to talk about later um <laughs> it's a it's a mode of um intransitive attention and it was i thought such an interesting thing to read as someone who has definitely i think like many people been bored while reading a poem <laughs> um, and you mentioned that you love reading these the poems about boredom or the the boring poems, um, and I I definitely want to get to that. Um, but before we do, um, the, I think we need to talk about the modes of transitive attention um, first. And those modes, which you just mentioned, are contemplation, desire, recollection, and imagination, and. I, we don't have time to go over all of them super in-depth. Um, you'll just have to get the book for that. Um, but I think we we definitely sh- can look at some of them. And I, I wonder if you can kind of open up this, um, our, our paying attention to these modes with how you would distinguish one from the other, um, especially since these all sound like such fundamental ways of reading a poem, um, like desire in the love poem or recollection in, like, in an elegy, these feel like very sedi- sedimented and very concrete different types of poems. Um, so how are you distinguishing these forms of attention?
0: I think that it's important what you say about these modes, contemplation desire, Recollection, imagination—these modes, seeming um, fundamental to both poetic experience and also um, the history of, of poetic genres. Right, from the fantasy to the love poem, or the erotic poem to um, to the elegy. Right, um, there is something fundamental about these modes as they play out in language, and 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 as modes of attention that have for a long time prompted people to want to make language um, about them. But the way that I distinguish them, you know, for me, it's helpful to think of them not as distinct um, kinds of poems or distinct um, kinds of experience, but modulations of a common medium, right? If we think of attention as a kind of clay that is formed both internally and externally, um, then each of these is is formed in a different way and gives form to different kinds of poetry. Um, contemplation is the one that I start with. And it's in some ways, you know, I start with it because it's in some ways the easiest to talk about. Um, it's a kind of starting point. Um, as well as I think such an obvious one. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm curious to hear why does contemplation seem like an obvious starting point to you if I can ask a question?
1: <laughs> um yeah, you totally can ask a question. I don't I think it's the way we learn about poetry. Um it's about things and in order to to write a poem you look at a thing. Um and I think I think that's a very introductory way of learning about poetry. This is a poem on you know Winter, or this is a poem on a rock I saw the other day, and in order to talk about that, you have to contemplate it and kind of take in what your attention is telling you about these subjects. Um, and I think you do a, you you talk about contemplation, but I also think you disrupt it, um, definitely in the way that there are other modes, there are other ways of being in a poetic, you know, um, in a poetic form of mind that are not just looking at something and thinking about it. Um, Mm. but Mm. I hope that answered your question.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it did. Um, yeah, I think, so I think in some ways it, it, it's, it's deceptively obvious as a starting point, right? Because it is, it is a kind of, it's, it is a kind of pre prior ground, right? In order to talk about something, in order to write about something, um, or in order to form a judgment about something, which is something maybe we can talk about later. Um, we have to contemplate it. (laughs) We have to look at it um, with our senses or with our mind. Right. But then, you know, as poems are often quite good at doing, you know, when we actually dig into poems of contemplation, we find that it's not so simple. Um, One of the poems that I think about is very, very famous poem um, in this chapter is Wallace Stevens' t- study of two pairs, which, you know, really does kind of perform that um, seeming simplicity and yet internally complicating movement of attention, right, where we start out with, you know, opusculum pedagogium and we, we know, we have then the pairs are not vials, nudes or bottles. They resemble nothing else. So we have, we're beginning in the negative. We're looking at what the pairs do not look like. We have them resembling nothing else. And so already it's just in the first few lines of of this poem, we already are in a kind of negative space. right? Because this simple object before us, which is not before the reader, um is now rendered in the negative, and so out of that negative space we have to then not only observe but create the mental object of the of the pairs in order to look at them or imagine them um, You know they are yellow forms composed of curves bulging toward the base, they are touched red, so here this kind of you know we have an interplay between language creating an image out of nothing for the contemplation where that brushes against the act of rendering live or real pairs into the form of painting in from rendering the three-dimensional into the two-dimensional rendering the two-dimensional into language then. Um, so, so a lot of this, this chapter on, <laughs> on contemplation had to look, had to, had to think hard about, you know, when we often the act of contemplation, you know, renders more complex the world rather than distilling it in clarity, right? That the more closely we look at something, even just our own hand, the more we notice about it, the more porous we see that it is, the more, um, the more it's changing as we observe it, right? Um, and so, you know, in some ways, you know, what, what seems like it should be a static and disinterested sort of exercise in aesthetic contemplation then becomes something much more, more, um, dynamic and and maybe fraught, right? Where then we're we're aware that like, we are being changed also by looking at something (laughs) and time is going by in that act.
1: Yeah. And if I can... But in. I thought this, the end where you, the study of pairs or two pairs, your reading of it was so interesting Um, because you get to the point that, you know, you write, it is in part, the study of two pairs is in part a poem about the failure of language to capture the fullness of perception. And I think one of the reasons it's, it's hard to read poetry and it's hard to feel quote the the absolutely unmixed attention from Simone Bay is the idea that you know he's looking at these two pairs of a, a painting of two pairs and I only have the words of them we're, we're much more removed and I think you kind of do that um same gesture in in talking about poems that when you read when you read a poem as well as when you when you're writing about them in your book there's this separation of I'm not in front of the object that the other person's in from and how can you ever conjure that up in language um but you know it's not a it's not a completely um futile uh I guess exercise there is something that goes on that's I don't know maybe it's too sentimental to say it's magical but I would say it's a magical process of poetry that I think is directly related to what you're talking about that it it allows us to have attention on something.
0: Mm, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm so glad that you that you brought Simone Ve in. Um, David Marno has written really beautifully about attention as as spiritual exercise. And it, you know, when when they talks about this idea of absolute unmixed attention, or you know, drawing on Malabranche, the attention is the natural prayer of the soul it's prayer because it's hard <laughs> and marno mm-hmm. does this beautiful job in his book of of showing that you know it's attention in in as in when it's in this context of spiritual exercise it's not an it's not it's a kind of impossible vanishing point for human cognition and for human's you know spiritual cognition as well um, because it is so impossible for humans to attend perfectly, even to something right in front of them, right. Even to their beloved's face, right in front of them. Um, Mm -hmm. much less render that into language that because of that impossibility, it hangs out there as, as as a, as a, as a regulative ideal to toward which to exercise, right. Toward which to practice.
1: Yeah. You're right. Um, such a great explanation of this in that words can only gesture in the direction of things by comparing them to other things so the reference to the failure of language to ever capture completely something that is in front of you for another person but there's not this i don't know a perhaps a pessimistic view of language or literature that would say it fails and it can never live up to it right after you you write that much is lost too in the original act of attending. Our senses are limited, our bodies are anchored, always pinned to one site, one vantage from which the senses can reach out. So it's it's an inherent failure. It's not just something that happens because we speak. It's something that happens because of the nature of perception. And it's I think poetry is is an attempt to perhaps overcome that or, or move beyond that or say this failure can be some kind of a success. It can do something Mm -hmm. else. It's not only, um, it's not only a pitfall. It can be the, the bridge to somewhere else.
0: Right, right, right. And even insofar as it is, the imprint not only of a of successes right minor successes in giving voice to the world minor successes in capturing th- something in language it in those pitfalls or in its failures it's the imprint of of something deeply human as well right which one could see as a value in itself right when when, when my students you know get frustrated by by the poems that we read in class because they're you know the they start out thinking they know what the poem is is about and then the closer they they come to the poem and the more time they spend with it the more baffled or bewildered they feel in the midst of the language and you know i i can only encourage or try to remind them that that bafflement and that bewilderment is important, right? Because that is our position in the world.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's, I, I think there's something so powerful about the, that, you know, the bewilderment, the idea that we're getting to see something else because poetry, it's a different way of seeing. And I think that's the attention that that brings is something that makes poetry such a, a powerful force within the economy of attention, I guess, in the contemporary age, um, which I think we can get to later. I have I have some thoughts that I would love to discuss with you about the economies of attention, um, but I, I want to get to desire because this was such a, a great chapter, um, and I wonder if you could just perhaps talk about desire as a form of attention. Um, I think probably because desire and love, those are what we think of when we think of poetry. I mean, we're about to come up on Valentine's Day. By the time this podcast is out, it'll be past Valentine's Day, I guess, but it's a time when we think of love poetry or when you think of poetry, you, you think of Shakespeare's sonnets um, or you think of love poems or maybe perhaps the um, the Patarkin sonnet. I think love and poetry are very mixed. Um, and you have a great discussion of how desire works as attention's hunger, to quote you. Um, so I wonder if I, I'll just open it up to you to speak a little bit about desire and attention.
0: Sure. Um, yeah. So so love poetry is, you know, one of our oldest forms of poetry, longest running. People never run out of things to say about love and losses, but. Um, And the the love and losses part, love and lack, right? That is Mm -hmm. what makes up desire. Um, So if we think about contemplation as the act of just attending to something in the present, um, maybe with duration, right? That we attend for a while. (laughs) Um, If we add to that a component of not having, right? So if we add to that distance, whether over space or time or um, emotional distance, right? Non-possession. We add to that distance interest, right? So the the presence of longing, um, as Robert Haas said, you know, longing because desire is full of endless distances, um, then that is where we get desire as a mode of attention, where there that which that which we are attending to is something that we do not have, <laughs> and something that we want, right? So I think you know also w- one of the challenges for me in writing about about the poetry of desire is that when we talk about love poetry. It's often more poetry of desire right there's a lot more poetry written on um, on not having the beloved or even in the context mm-hmm. of of you know of you know shall I compare thee to a summer's day right there's the Shakespeare th- looking at the beloved, there's a sort of a present contemplation there right looking at the beloved making that comparison. Um, but, but there's also the anticipation of a time when the beloved will no longer be there because the beloved is, the beloved is mortal, right? Mm-hmm. So desire in that sense is love in the present with the anticipation or the knowledge that it will be taken away. Um, so I had to think a lot thinking in this chapter about the difference between love and desire Right. Is it different? Is it different as a mode of, of speaking and as a mode of writing and as a mode of attending, right? To to talk about something that you love, that is close to you, that you feel that you have insofar as one can have anyone or anything. Um, to talk then about desire, right, is something slightly different, right? Mm-hmm. Desire emphasizes the not having it emphasizes the the tension and the 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 wanting. Um, so, one of the poems that I talk about in this chapter is this Emily Dickinson poem. I had been hungry all the years.
1: Such a good. And what
0: name. I I love
1: this poem,
0: and I love it as a poem of desire because we take out. We don't take out really the erotic um, but we take out the, the the story of people loving one another or desiring one another right that so often sort of dominates the field of desire, right um, Human desires human, right body, desires body, and in this we have we have a different formulation of desire, right We have the act of of seeing through windows, bread that one does not have, or cannot have, or belongs to someone else, right? Um, So maybe I'll just read that poem. And and then we can talk a little bit more about desire. Or maybe you have other directions you want to read it. I
1: was just thinking that. Um, So this is Emily Dickinson's I had been hungry all the years. I had been hungry all the years. My noon had come to dine. I trembling drew the table near and touched the curious wine. T'was this on tables I had seen when turning hungry home, I looked in windows for wealth, I could not hope for mine. I did not know the ample bread, t'was so unlike the crumb, the birds and I had softened, had often shared in nature's dining room. The plenty hurt me, t'was so new myself felt ill, and odd as berry of a mountain bush transplanted to a road nor was I hungry so I found that hunger was a way of persons outside windows the entering takes away
0: so there's this beautiful um kind of enactment of hunger that Dickinson crafts here because the the reader or the listener you know has to wait until the third stanza to be given either syntactically or even imagistically, the, the ample bread, right? The thing, <laughs> the thing that is that is hungered after, right? And that ample bread is presented as something that the, the speaker says that they do not know because it is so unlike these crumbs that they have shared with the birds, right? Out in the open. And this idea in the following, in the fourth, stanza of the plenty hurt me twas so new the fact that there's a there's a kind of illness an illness of having (laughs) an illness of having too much an illness of abundance of of hurt of abundance an illness and oddness right um and this is just based on seeing the bread (laughs) not, not even eating the bread right that that Sight of abundance is so much that it hurts and it almost has this kind of you know i say it's not it is an erotic poem in many ways because then we have a kind of ecstatic um eruption at the end or or a or a or a a confusion <laughs> right nor was i hungry so i found that hunger was a way of persons outside windows. The entering takes away. I, I feel that I could read that stanza for the next ten years and still <laughs> each time have a different reading of it. But there's something there about about hunger. Hunger is a way that entering would 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 diminish that there's a, <laughs> the hunger itself is, is almost like self fulfilling. The hunger itself is enough. The fu- the humber- hunger itself is, a, is a way for those of us dwelling outside windows or those of us looking in, or those of us looking at things that to enter and take the bread would, would destroy.
1: Yeah. There's, I mean, I, I will just posit myself as a, as a diehard Lacanian here, but there's such a intense psychoanalytic reading that I that's on the tip of my tongue, um, and I think that the way you you structure desire as part of this as part of a lack. I mean, I'm also I'm still a Lacanian. I'm still a a psychoanalytic <laughs> reader, um, but I think there's something to it that um, a does a poem that is that makes you desire. It's all based on the fact that I cannot see what the the writer, scriptor, or narrator is seeing, in most mm-hmm. cases. Um, mm-hmm. So I think this type of desire that you're you're bringing about, I think it, it can transition us really quickly um, or really easily into intransitive attention, where there is no object, and it's a different type of not having an object than desire. And I wonder if you could bring about that difference and kind of talk about what you mean when a, a poem its attention is not on an object. Where is it going?
0: <laughs> Where is it going? Where <laughs> is it if it's not on an object? Um, well, it can, it, can, it can go all kinds of places, right? Without it, without an object of focus. And I think that's what's often forgotten about attention just because it's not how we have come to use the term, right? Um, but if we think of attention as a, as a field or as a sphere, um, of you know of of conscious awareness right, in the mind uh, as all of the sense data is coming in and all of the internal processing is taking place. Um, there are all of these states, some of them active, some of them more passive, where we're not focused on a particular object. And in fact, you know, a lot of our days are probably spent in in modes where we're not sort of locking our attention in on a on a problem or on a, a beautiful object. We um, many a lot of my days are spent, you know, somewhere in the middle, right, with wandering mind, um, or in daydream, right, or in um, zone zone out, fuzz, right. Um, there, there are all of these sort of more porous. Uh, states right and i say some of them are active and some of them are passive because within you know just as we saw we see that there are all of these different ways of attending to an object there are also a lot of different ways of not attending to an object um or or attending to not an object so you know for example you know vigilance being a kind of it's a it's a state of attention that's been highly studied because it's very, very relevant to a variety of, of kinds of work. Um, but vigilance is a mode of, of being ready to attend to an object. Re- I should say ready to focus on an object, right? Ready to detect the presence of an object or an event or change. But in that state of vigilance, when one is you know, scanning the field or just holding the mind open, whether in prayer or in, um, you know, a, a night watch's shift, or um, scanning a, a surveillance screen, or um, you know, looking for signs of change on a horizon, right? Um, there's there's a there's a a preparation, a holding of the attention open and ready for a potential object to emerge. This is very different from, from focalizing the attention on an object, right? Um, whereas in case of something like idleness or, or boredom, um, there's, you know, a, there's a softer, you know, there's a softer modality where there's no endogenous focalization, no active selection taking place, no active, um, effortful, um, discriminating sort of executive attention taking place. And instead the mind is, is, is wandering and more passively receiving, um, sensory input. Right. Um, boredom is a little bit more complicated so we can maybe save that.
1: (laughs) That's a start. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I would love to talk about boredom. Um, I think you write that it's the, um, the extreme of disengaged intransitivity. And I thought it was your discussion of boredom was just so incredible because we typically conceive of boredom as, you know, we have, it's the opposite of attention. It's, I'm so, you know, I'm bored. I don't have anything to capture my attention. There's nothing that's interesting in the world. Um, But you write that Boredom emerges not as the opposite of attention, but as a condition of attention itself in which active focalization or engaged concentration is challenged. So, could you kind of parse out what boredom is and how boredom perhaps works as a condition of attention that can give rise to perhaps some more, a different intransitive form of attention or even as a type of transitive attention?
0: Sure. Um, and I should say, you know, that when I see when I use the word condition in that sense, I don't mean condition in the sense of precondition. Mm -hmm. Um, but more, you know, in the sense of mode, right? Um, a, a conditioning, a a state of attention. Um, so yeah, as you say, boredom there have been lots of wonderful studies on, on boredom, especially in, in modernism and in modernist you know, um, historical period because it becomes this kind of hallmark for modern experience, for, ur- for urban life, for routinized schedules, for routinized times, for the, the accomplishment of tedious tasks, for um, alienation between oneself and one's uh, workplace or the product of one's work. Um, there are a lot of ways in which the particular kind of attention or the attentional state that is boredom, you know, come into play and, and become a huge part of the discourse about what it is to be a human living in the 20th century, for example. Um, I think actually maybe this has changed during COVID. I think, you know, I think the, the play of distraction came to have a bigger sort of role in the discourse about, you know, what is the hallmark of, of, you know, in 21st century consciousness, I think distractibility, um, became a much bigger sort of player than boredom. I think shut in and the sort of the, the strangeness of, of time during, during the pandemic has, has brought boredom back as a big player in the way that we think about our minds. Um, but distraction also, right? Distraction is not the opposite of attention, as we would like to think. It's the opposite of focused, you know, quote unquote, successful, right? Focused executive attention, but it's a kind of attention in which the attending mm-hmm. mind is moving in lots of directions <laughs> and is starting is starting to attend on one thing and is moving to another thing, right? Um, so in boredom, we have. You know, there, there are lots of theories about what produces boredom, and I, I, I go through some of them in the book. I, I don't want to go through a bunch of them now, but you know, there, there have been theories that boredom arises from um, routine. There have been boredom, theories that boredom arises from, um, a ta- you know, especially in the education field, you know, from a task being too easy. There have been theories that boredom arises from a task being too hard or from a, or from a combination of both of those things, right? When there's a misalignment between the attending mind and what it is being asked to do, or the, or the, or the problem that it is confronted with, either the problem is too easy and the attention moves on, or the problem is too hard and the, and the attending mind gives up and wants to go somewhere else. (laughs) Um, so in the experience of boredom, as it has been described, you know, we have a lot of, of common sort of descriptors. Maybe the biggest one being a sense that time is moving very slowly. It's the opposite of, you know, time flying when you're having fun or time flying when you're in the quote unquote zone. Mm-hmm. right when you're law when you're when you're captured in wrapped attention to something time seems to move very quickly right a, a two hours go by and then the movie is over for example and you haven't been aware of your mind trying to attend to the movie unless it is a you know quote unquote boring movie um so there's a there's a sudden awareness of the mind struggling to attend struggling to focus and that is one hallmark of attention there's an aware of boredom and there's a a, an awareness of of time either not passing or passing very slowly um heidegger has this great description of you know sitting in the railway station um a, a former professor of mine said that that scene was actually he was going on his way to see arendt but Um, he's sitting in the railway station, you know, sort of like walking outside and then going back inside and looking at the clock and the clock has not moved and the train has not arrived. And, you know, it's just sort of like, you know, the classic waiting room example, um, a number of the, even in the cognitive field, a number of the sort of descriptions of of boredom start with this scene of the waiting room, right? Um, the clock is not moving. So I found that really interesting, you know, to think about, okay, we seem to have in boredom, an experience of routinization, repetition, and a kind of suspension of time, all at the same time. Um, One of the things that I try to do in the chapter on attention, though, is, is to say, even though, okay, boredom is a, you know, does become a big part of the discourse of how society, how, you know, Western, industrial, Western society in particular describes itself um, in the modern period. But boredom is something that is older than that, right? It's gone by different names. It's gone by the name of Onnia. It's gone by, you know, a, a, a cousin might be considered melancholia. It's gone by um, Asidia, you know, the noonday demon. Um, their descriptions of of the kind of incredible boringness or the incredible um, Asidia symptoms of of monk life, right? Where suddenly... One becomes disengaged from their activities at the monastery, um, because of what? I don't know, right? Because of the the challenge that maybe Schopenhauer described when this relationship between between desire and and a kind of and 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 boredom, right? Where if so much of our interest in the world. Is caught up in desire, is driven by desire. That then, when we obtain the object of our desire, whether it's, you know, a sandwich or a, or a human being, it's love, right? Um, then that desire no longer it ceases to drive us, and suddenly we we have no motor, and we have to find a new object of desire. So that we're constantly moving back and forth between desire and boredom in this sort of cycle of suffering. Um, so I can talk to you. I feel I've been talking for too long. So I can talk about the examples that I give in the boredom chapter, but I wanted to check in with you because I realize I'm maybe rambling.
1: <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I thought it's so interesting that you bring up, I mean, the, the Heidegger example, as well as the waiting room. Um, those are both so, um, they capture boredom so well. Um, and I think something that's interesting is the idea that boredom as a form of attention um, in, in, I mean, in attention, um, it it comes from Latin um, "ad tendere," which is it means to stretch toward. But in French, when you attend, which is like the the verb form, or um, it also means to wait. So you pay attention while you wait, and that's what what do you what do you do in a waiting room other than wait? Um. So there's that that really. Um, i don't i don't even know what word for it there's a, a ambiguity within attention that always can spring up into into boredom um, but that doesn't mean it's not attention
0: um,
1: so before the end i wanna i want to talk a second about the end of your book which is aada um akoda and it's toward a practice of poetic attention and i think this is something that I thought was really important about your book and you brought it up in the beginning and how we live in a contemporary society where attention is economized. You know, we pay attention to something. There's always some kind of exchange. And I wonder if you could just give a little bit about how reading poetry or how poetry as um, a form, as even a commodity can help us to redefine or reorient ourselves in terms of attention and how it can change attention within a society or a contemporary moment in which every day is structured around these types of attention in which I'm like, I have to be fully attentive or attentive to, you know, six things at once, or I, I don't know what to do with myself if I don't have something going on right now to capture all of my attention. Mm. 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 Mm.
0: Yeah the demands on attention in the information age are are immense um and it would have been nice if you know that demand or that those proliferating demands had um kind of been lessened <laughs> for example when everyone decide, you know everyone had to stay at home but no of course that's not the case there were new demands and different demands and they took different shape and different material form mm-hmm. um but But it's true, right? We have, whether we are um, educators or workers of any kind, parents, um, the children of parents, um, we have all of these demands on our attention, right? Not to mention the news cycle um, in all of its mediatic (laughs) distributions. Um, And it's very hard to... um, carve out i think a space for a different kind of attention that is that is not either grabbing at us um or kind of um motivated by by external interests right so um so much of the ways in which we um we really make the the myriad decisions about what to attend to and what not to attend to as we go through our days has to do with you know what will what will benefit X, Y, and Z the most? What will benefit um, my career the most? What will benefit this other person's career the most? What will benefit uh, my child, um, my child's education the most? Right. Um, there are all of these sort of um, motivated economies uh, in which we have to try to have some agency over what we attend to and what we don't. Meanwhile, right. Marketers and advertisers have gotten very good at uh, telling us what to attend to, <laughs> and capturing our attention, right, with uh, blinking bylines and uh, or you know headlines and and sort of clickbait and uh, memes and all of all of that, right? Um, and I think one of the reasons that you know. I and many other people feel a kind of gear grinding when they first sit down or are asked to, to read a poem either by a friend or for a course or whatever is that it's, it's a, it's a radically different kind of attentional act that's being asked, right? Because it is, you know, maybe in the Kantian sense sort of disinterested in the sense that it, you know, there is no, um, there's no good reason to read a poem, right? It's, <laughs> poems are deeply useless in a way. They're deeply, deeply purposeless in a way, um, or at least they fall outside of our, our typical daily economies of purpose and, and utility. Um, but I think in, in in doing that, whether we're practicing poetic attention by looking at poems or practicing poetic attention by looking at other things that similarly require complex but disinterested acts of attention. Um, the hope you know, is that maybe we might be able to cultivate or tune or, or, or enrich or deepen our ability to, to pay attention without, um, without agendas without um, without a, a paycheck behind it or without a um something to buy or sell behind it so in in that sense i think there is a kind of um ethical interest in you know if we can practice attending to complex entities like poems maybe we can practice attending to complex entities like other people um, or like situations um maybe we might even be able to practice attending to our own the economies that we are implicated and entrenched in in a different way right a friend recently told me you know that marxism is a great formalism because it you know it's basically a, a critical attention to the the form that is behind the content right the, the to the structures of circulation right and to the patterns the, the way something is made that are that are less visible um if i can say one more thing i i think in some ways you know writing this book i came away in dakota with a with a slightly more complex or Um, problematized ethics insofar as there is an ethical possibility in the in the practice of attention. Um, I think my hope (laughs) when I started writing the book was that, you know, paying attention to poems will make us better people. (laughs) Right. That paying attention to poems, if I can give, you know, if I can devote my attention to understanding this complex little word being um, maybe I'll be a better person. Right. Maybe it'll also spark, um, you know, greater sense of of responsibility and 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 awareness and and even compassion or something like that toward living beings and their complex formal mechanisms, right? Um, but the thing is, you know, as the the structure of the book shows, right? To attend <laughs> is an act that is always going on and takes radically different forms, including. Turning the focus away from things, right, including, um, including, including, looking with a with a critical or cruel eye, right. Um, that to to be very good at attention may not automatically uh, make us sort of morally better in the way that that, for example, Martha Nussbaum a- argues right, that, that complex works of literature in making us more finely aware and richly responsible, um, you know, will make us more finely aware and richly responsible humans. This is something that Joshua Landy has, has made a very, very compelling argument in the context of narrative, right, that that may not be the case, that perhaps we get, we get better tools and then we still have to decide what to do with them in the world. Right? Or we can sharpen our tools and we still have to use them um, not as weapons. So um, so in the end, you know, I, I think when we in some ways it circles back to the beginning of our conversation because when we were talking about, you know, feeling more baffled or bewildered or uh, unsure having attended to something or having contemplated something, I think I, I had a similar experience in writing this where you know I realized that poems do many things with our attention and that it can it is not such a neat moral bow that they then render us more you know better world citizens or better ecological citizens or better citizens at all toward each other right
1: um, so, <laughs> well, I, I think I don't know if literature can be the ultimate moral act or make us better people, but I, I certainly do like to hope. I hope that. <laughs> as someone who studies literature, I like to think that it it can. Um certainly sometimes.
0: I hope so um, too.
1: <laughs>
0: I hope so too. I think it yeah, can make I, us a teacher <laughs> better at certain things. <laughs> maybe. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and even if it can't make us better reading poetry is just a beautiful thing in and of itself it doesn't a very maybe that's a very you know a kantian moral <laughs> stance but i think poetry <laughs> can can just be good um just well i have good. one final question for you and that is what are you thinking of now what's are you working on any new projects do you have anything forthcoming
0: yeah so um so I do have a piece forthcoming. It's going to be in um, in MLN. I have an issue on comparative literature coming out, and I've written a piece on the poet Nathaniel Mackey. Um, and the larger project that I have on my table right now and underway, in some ways, picks up where this book um, leaves off, especially with a special uh, interest in the, the question of vigilance. Um, but you know, in the coda to this book, I think about, you know, how attention is is situated and situates us in in a body. And this next project, the working title is Vital Signs. This next project, one um, you know, takes that up more seriously, looking at embodied poetic attention, looking at poetic poetic forms, rootedness in 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 very concrete, vital signs like breath and pulse, as well as vital needs like air and water and shelter. Um, And what interests me in in doing that is 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 looking at you know what 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 comes of the act of making the acts of poesis when the conditions for making are precarious, when the conditions of the body of life itself right of the, the maker's life or the listener's life the reader's life are deeply precarious whether it's due to um, illness or simple mortality or um job and housing insecurity you know ecological insecurities um so the book that book the notional structure will be is around um kind of linking aspects of poetic form to the vital signs and situating them in relationship to vital needs. Uh, so a piece that I've just written for the, there's an upcoming uh, interdisciplinary approaches to attention colloquium uh, with Princeton. Um, and for that, I have written about um, poetic attention and the precarious body in the context of, of sitting beside um, a loved one, in this case, my mother, uh, while she was in a coma for a long time. And thinking about you know what is it to attend in language to a deeply precarious body um, from the position of an equally finite and precarious body in a precarious environment right and in, in precarious combination of of ecology and and politics and and economy so that's the next project. <laughs> Well, well that sounds like a, a really interesting project.
1: Well, <laughs> Thank you. I <laughs> hope to have that on the show again. And I would love to have you back, and we can talk about it. We can t- continue this conversation in a new light. That sounds great. So once again, um, that was Lucy Alford talking about her book, Forms of Poetic Attention, out from Columbia University Press, um, I believe at the end of last year. Um, Thank you for listening um, to the New Books and Literary Studies channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Britt Edelin. Until next time, thanks.